I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Hello, everyone. Good evening, and uh, welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to introduce Sheila Robottom and uh, Melissa Ben. Sheila's one of our leading historians of feminism and herself an important part through publications like the 1969 pamphlet, uh, Women's Liberation and the New Politics of the History, which she describes. Her most recent books are Dreamers of a New Day, her biography of Edward Carpenter, A Life of Liberty and Love, and today, Rebel Crossings, New Women, Free Lovers and Radicals in Britain and the United States all just out from Verso, for whom, uh, to Sarah especially, much thanks. Uh, she'll be in conversation with Melissa Ben, a journalist, LRB contributor, and author of novels and non-fiction, uh, including most recently What Shall We Tell Our Daughters and School Wars. Sheila, Melissa, welcome and thank you. Thank you. So, obviously, I am delighted and a bit daunted to be in conversation with Sheila. I think it would be Sheila doing the conversing and me doing the gentle probing. I must say, the first time I met Sheila was now about 40 years ago. I had just got a degree from the LSE, and I came out realising that I was totally uneducated. So I thought, I have finished my formal schooling, so I better start learning something. So the first thing I did was go to a WEA class taught by Sheila. I have to say, I didn't understand a lot of it because you were so <laughs> clever and it was complicated in about lots of things I've now caught up with 40 years on. But it was fantastic. Sheila is a legend, obviously, and I don't think we need to go into why because I'm sure you all know. But one of the things we agreed in talking tonight is that we would just talk about this book. Our conversation will be about this book because obviously we could talk about so many different things and I suspect that questions will be slightly more general, and I hope they will, that people can ask what they want. So this is an amazing book. It's 400 pages. You said when we were talking earlier, you didn't think you could summarise it because you'd written it and you're so immersed. And you, on, you were on Woman's Hour, and you did a very good job, I thought, before Jane Garvey of Woman's Hour started asking you about your mother. So I'm going to have a go at summarising it for people who haven't read it to sort of get the frame. It's about six radicals at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, I'm waiting for her to say no, it's not. <laughs> Five of whom began their life in the United Kingdom. Four women, two men, one of whom was born in Massachusetts um, came from there. And it's about their involvement in so many radical causes. And also, there's, it's like a novel. I mean, the book is beautifully structured, so I pay tribute to you and your editors. I suspect they had something to do with it. And Faith. And, and Faith, you're right, yes. Yeah. 
Um, so it's like a novel. You just pick each chapter picks up a different part of this multi-threaded narrative. But there are two sets of almost menage a trois at the heart of it. Miriam Daniel, Helena Bourne and Robert Nicholl, who all started out being involved in radical politics in Bristol and then all very oddly to me, move over to America and start their life there. And we'll talk about why they did that. And then later on, in a later decade, there is William Bailey, Helena Bourne and Helen Tufts, who also have complicated interrelations. And then there's the writer Gertrude Dix. Now, is that good enough for you as the writer, as a summary? Okay. Because <laughs> I just think that explains what we're talking about. It's very complicated but interesting. So the first thing I want to ask you is, I remember talking to Nigel Fountain, your friend, when I did a profile of you for The Guardian, and he said, Sheila, when I first met Sheila, you'd meet her in the middle of the night, and she'd be talking about and almost with the characters she's writing about. So is it that kind of a book? Where did you meet these characters? As for Nigel in the night, I, I lived in a <laughs> communal house, and I can't remember ever talking about them in the night, but that's, a that's his metaphorical. <laughs> yes, I did find that I got really interested in um, networks of people. And I, I realized it, it really went back to the time when, at school, I got hold of a biography of Havelock Ellis and realized, good heavens, there were all these people who lived, who chose to live differently in the past. And for reasons that I don't really understand, my friends and I at a Methodist boarding school in a place called uh, Hunmanby, a little village in East Yorkshire, were determined that we were going to live differently. And we stuck up pictures of the beats and people on the um, notice board and things like that. We were kind of this little gang of rebels in the middle of nowhere. And to find that there had been you know, a history of odd people was was really exciting from when I was young. And, but I never imagined I'd be following that circle around Ellis and Edward Carpenter on and on through my life. But in a way, you've written the history of that circle. So you, these were just names when you first came across them, that you, you, or just sentences or fragments, presumably, were they? Yes, they, they're the kind of people who are mentioned in passing. And because I'm so nosy... I always, you know, I collect all these names of people who are not the main players who have, I mean, it's not that everybody's heard of Ellis and Carpenter, yeah. but there's a fair number of people have, but hardly anyone really, apart from a, a strand of the socialist history in, in Bristol, really, were these people like Miriam Daniel and Helena Bourne remembered. And then some anarchist people in America picked up on uh, Miriam Daniel's poetry, which appeared in the anarchist uh, paper Liberty. So they're kind of in little groups. I think Gertrude Dix is perhaps known in literary circles because mm. she was a, a new woman novelist. And she did two novels. The second is chaotic but really really fascinating the image breakers i notice you 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 go in for a bit of 
cultural and literary criticism. It's like there's all this sort of deeply involved social history, and then suddenly we have Sheila Robot and reviews Gertrude Dix. <laughs> you know, you sort of summarise and go into it. But yeah. can I? Because actually, yeah. the book related quite a bit to the yeah. historical background in Bristol because she'd been involved in the socialist yeah. movement and new unionism in Bristol. Yeah. Well, can we start then with Bristol? Because Bristol's the heart of the first part of the book. And really, the, the ideas and the period, I mean, it being a book by you and it therefore being truthful to the time, it's just so much going on that you pick up. But what particularly interested me was the rise of the new unionism, the previously unorganised workers who the craft elite had not bothered with and who employers were trying to exploit... And so you've got uh, strikes at the fried chocolate factory in Bristol. You've got the cotton workers. Helena Bourne tries to organise home workers unsuccessfully. She feels sad about that for the rest of her life. So, do you think that was one of the that was one of the main things going on in Bristol at the time? In uh, the autumn of 1889 and the first half, certainly of 1890, there's this tremendous upsurge of union militancy from groups who'd never, ever been um, really active before. Although, having said that, when they hadn't been active in a unionised way. Mm. But um, Mike Richardson's shown that the cotton workers, actually long before there was a union, had been making trouble in the large women's uh, uh, contingent in the cotton industry in Bristol. And they'd been troublesome. Either they kind of caused riots or they actually went to court and, and so Mike's shown that they, that history went back. So it's kind of interesting because they, they come into view, they flash into view moment, in a momentary way because middle class people start getting involved and so, the socialist group in yeah. Bristol get involved which was a non-aligned socialist group really. They were influenced by Marxism but also Christian socialism they were keen on Walt Whitman and they loved singing yeah. they sang glees this was the <laughs> Bristol Socialist Society yes. yes and Miriam Daniel and Helena Bourne came to join that Socialist Society in 1889 having both been in the Bristol Women's Liberal Association which in an entirely different way was a very radical uh, group of women who supported the suffrage and also were active in, they had been active in movements like Contagious Diseases Act, the resistance to women being seized off the streets and forcibly searched. So there was a a radical element, but most of the women in the Women's Liberal Association were suspicious of the unions which included men. And they also were suspicious of um, socialism. Mm. Although some were inclined towards social reform in terms of education. But Miriam and Helena were really radicalised by the new unionism and moved away from the more liberal politics, didn't they? I think they interacted on each other. They they met in 1888 Mm. and became friends and... They were just so excited, these two women, talking to each other about everything. 
and they went on long walks together. Um, and the influences on them were very typical of people at that time, people like Ruskin, um, Walt Whitman, yeah. and they liked Edward Carpenter, who people may have heard of. He was a, a socialist who was writing about the environment and um, sexual equality for women, but also, amazingly, writing on um, homosexuality. Although one of the characters in the book didn't realise that Edward Carpenter was writing about that until right at the end of her life, and she was absolutely outraged. Because there are, although these are very radical and remarkable women, there are pockets of yeah. racism and anti-Semitism yeah. and concerts, even at the end, social yeah. conservatism in their attitudes. Yes, particularly with Helen Tufts, who's the American woman. The others migrate to America, but yeah. Uh, yeah. she was from a family which had revolutionary lineage back to the um, resistance against Britain. And the Tufts family were WASP. They were definitely WASP. But her father was very unpractical and never earned any money, so they lived in genteel poverty all her life. But she had all these prejudices against pretty well everybody, except... The only immigrant she accepted were English immigrants. And then the only socialist she accepted, actually, she did become an anarchist, but she did accept the Bristol socialists because she loved Helena Bourne, who was her great friend. So maybe because there are so many things I want to touch on. So let's just touch on this, the female friendships in the book. It's so striking how much the two sets of women, Miriam and Helena and Helena and Helen, how much, how devoted they were to each other. I mean, it's, it's a far greater love, actually, than what my reading of it, than the love they had for the men in their lives. Is, do you think that's an unfair reading? It was just so consistent, and each of them wanted to preserve the legacy of their friend who had died. And I don't think it was more. I think... I um, thought you'd say that, actually. I think, <laughs> I think that's my, I think I that's my judgment. <laughs> I think uh, it's very hard because Miriam, there were very few letters from Miriam. She did write uh, short stories and um, she wrote poetry, but she, the very few letters, and those letters were so precious. They, they came by chance, I found out about them, from Brown. But in those, she's absolutely explicit about her love for Robert. Yes, yeah. I suppose, I mean, it goes He's... wrong in the end. With the, the male-female relations go wrong in that very ordinary way that they do. They're weighed down by children. They're weighed down by lack of money. No one in, in, in none of your characters ever have any money. They really suffer. No, but they really suffer for their radicalism, don't they? But they don't ever, they accept that. But so those stresses on love, there's those stresses on love relations, aren't there, Sheila? Tell me that they are in the book, and I've read yes, that. Yes, it's. I mean, it's It's very hard because I was really wary of using poetry and the novels as evidence, but the there is there are so many sort of explicit hints in what Miriam writes, and I think when she went to, it should be explained that the great scandal was that Miriam. Mm being married to a liberal, radical solicitor in Bristol, fell in love with Robert Nicholl, who was younger. He was an a Edinburgh uh, medical student and who was influenced by Patrick Geddes. 
and she brings him to Bristol, yeah. and they get mixed up in this great turmoil of the strikes. And she leaves her husband, and the scandal of being both active in these strikes yeah. and in a relationship with a man she isn't married to. And Helena really risks her reputation because she comes and lives with them mm. in a working-class part of Bristol called St. Philip's. But they don't, that's another strand, isn't it, about trying to create a new way of living, which you have said you're very interested in, and is really more prominent, a new individual way of living, and is more prominent in strands of anarchism than it is in socialism, certainly, as it developed. Because we're, lo we're looking at a period which is just before the formation of the ILP in, in England and the Labour Party, which, as we know, the Labour Party's never been that interested in different ways of living. <laughs> you know, it's much more statist and collective. But they were, they lived in, that, in the house that you're talking about, their bare floorboards. And again, Carpenter, who is the single biggest influence on this book, I mean, he is there throughout. He keeps peeping, oh, he peeping writes up. letters. Yes, he he, I think he's, he's, yeah. he's, he's got a nice little troublesome edge to him, I think. I don't know him as well as you do because you've read him. Well, I think him. he fancies Robert Nichols. Yeah, well, well you, you get. So, <laughs> he's a very but, but he's there. He and, Walt, he and Walt Whitman are like the two portraits on the wall of this book <laughs> to me. But, but just tell us a bit about the, what was going on with this idea of finding another way of living, including how the home might be organised, because that's the strand throughout all of their lives, isn't it? Yes, they definitely wanted um, a new, new world. In yeah. the, they wanted the world transformed and relationships transformed. So it is, it's a transformatory kind of socialism which the division hasn't occurred be between anarchism and socialism so sharply uh, in the 1880s as it was later in the 1890s. And the, the, there's a lot of crossing, crossing back and forth. I mean, um, some of the anarchists uh, in Britain, the anarchist communists, are quite connected in with the, with the socialists. And there isn't a clear absolutely clear demarcations. Gradually, the tensions grow, but it's not so sharp. Can I ask you about something which, in a way, you take for granted, maybe because there's no records of it, that these... So we've got Miriam, Helena and Robert, who suddenly well, it moved to America. Can you tell us, do you find out anything more about why they decided to go? I mean, it, it, it's not a huge part of the book, is it? You just... They've, they've gone, and you discover them then suddenly over in Boston, isn't it? I got the feeling that they were pretty shocked because they went from Im immersion in a great collective movement in Bristol and then they were isolated when they get to um, America. But I think that they um, were not that unusual. I mean, there's quite a bit of toing and froing. I mean, not only are people going out to give talks, but there are some Americans living, Monkey or Conway, who was living in um, Britain almost as a bit of an exile as a radical and free thinker. Um, so there's, and there are working class people in Manchester that William Bailey knows who go off to America and get involved in the socialist and anarchist movements yeah. in America and, and then come back. So there's stories that are direct, direct stories about what's happening in America. Anarchists like the, uh, Josephine Tilton was over in Britain She's a, a person who campaigned for contraception in the 1870s. Yeah, that's early. Yeah, she's, and yeah. she believed in this very sort of 
ethical, high-minded free love, which was quite common in America. So there's a lot of movement between uh, people. Can I just ask you about contraception? Because Miriam and Robert were obviously very drawn to each other physically, one presumed, but she decided that they wouldn't have sex more than once every 18 months. <laughs> and, you know, as a modern reader, you that's, that's interesting. And, but, uh, and I presumed that it was because of the burden of childbearing. But actually, we, we talked about this on the phone the other day. You said it was more complicated than that. There were ideas about... Sexual self-containment, I can't think what the word well, is. Well, I, uh, I don't have explicit evidence of her saying why she yeah. didn't want to have sex with Robert. I mean, this is an incredibly nosy thing to be finding out That's about That's why you're a great social historian. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is gossip that came from Helena Bourne to the wife of a poet called Koopman, Mrs. Koopman, who happens also to be called Helen. Very There's a lot of Helens in this book. Um, and it, she says that, you see, Miriam had had a child with Robert, and life was very, very difficult. They were very poor, and it was, you know, very, very hard work. And actually, Helena Bourne ended up doing a lot of the donkey work, looking after the child, and also earning money. So she's, her life is really difficult. So there are practical reasons why she's not keen on having sex with Robert. It may be that they weren't getting on. Yeah. I don't know. But the story is that is relayed, the gossip relayed to Helen Tufts later. So this is, this is really hard to say why. I, what I did in the end was I, I put various possibilities. And one possibility is that within this free love thinking, there, there was the... Emphasis on women's control over their sexuality, so that denial of sex and continence was also something that some women wanted to assert the right to when they wanted sex or not. And so free love has different aspects. There are some people who argued for contraception to make sex easier, and others who said, Actually, we need to change human relationships in a more fundamental way so that women have more control. We've talked a bit about the, the UK side of the story, or the Bristol, but there's also bits about Edinburgh and uh, Manchester. And the, the men came from different parts of the UK. But they have moved to America, and the, the action, as it were, moves there. And the politics is more disparate there, isn't it? It's because when we're in Bristol, we have this sense of an emerging socialist and labour movement, suffrage yeah. growing, and uh, a smaller society. Over in America, first of all, there's these vast open spaces. So one of the characters, well, three of them in the beginning, moved to California to the White Knights Ranch, which is in the middle of the Sierras, and live a completely different kind of life. But, but <laughs> just to concentrate on the politics of the book... The ones who stay in more urban environments, what was going on there? What do you feel was really significant in the anarchist and emerging socialist movement of that period? There's a lot going on yeah. which they're not involved in. I mean, there's great movements of um, people in America organising in unions, rather like the, the new unions. There's emergence of uh, women in unions. Yeah. There's... There's great surges of militancy and very violent suppression of those strikes, but there's no connection between the people who come from Britain and the the um, you know in my book they're not 
directly involved. I mentioned these things in the background, but they're not themselves involved. Were in you those. disappointed in that as a social historian? Well, were you, were you looking for the crossover with the big events? I think, I think there is a kind of way, if you're a lefty and a feminist, you want the people to be slightly heroic. But the thing is that your training as a historian is to not, is to suppress that, because you're meant to be looking at it from you know, those people's perspectives within the times, insofar as that is possible. I mean, it's always a hit and a miss, but you want to get in there. So there's always a bit of a tussle. I mean, I had a bit of a difficulty with William, who starts off being you know, a heroic speaker for socialism in the rain in Manchester and then sort of ends up being... I liked him. He ended up being concerned about water supply and municipal He parks. was, he was, he did. <laughs> Which I think is he really did important. Have, he did, yes. But he does, he gets a bit enthusiastic about the possibility of socially minded capitalists transforming yeah. capitalism and he's... You, you don't, you're not that keen on that. <laughs> I, think well, I, probably I mean, <laughs> socially minded capitalists are better than horrible total money-grubbing sweaters. but Yeah, <laughs> yeah not your favourites. Um, but, you know, it's funny you say you want, as a social historian and as a quester, because this is such a quest of a book to me, readers, um, that you wanted them to be heroic. I felt all the way through they were nothing but heroic. <laughs> I thought all six of them in their... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com flawed, impressive, you know, ceaseless activity, which I do recognise from strands of the left and feminism all around us. But they just never stopped, did they? And they never really, a modern phrase, sold out. They just kept exploring. Some of the ideas seem a bit esoteric to me. You know, you're very good at all the different strands of, um, not incontinence movement, and those kind of things. But they just kept writing and... Uh, working for journals and arguing and didn't they all the yes. way through is it, I'm not saying don't you think that's <coughs> heroic but do you recognise that as a form of heroism and do you think it changed things it's very difficult to it, what is strange is to see Helena Bourne arguing she joins the Walt Whitman Society yeah. And within the Walt Whitman Fellowship, uh, which is a group of progressive people, but they're not really all exactly left, but they, you know, they, they, they're concerned about ideas and social change. And she really tries to democratize and make sure that there's a sense of process and sharing and democracy within 
the group. Yeah. So she, she dedicates herself to this little group, really, in America. Yeah. Miriam was involved with Robert, with a group uh, of individualist anarchists around a, a paper called Liberty. And they were very strong on issues like defending free speech and opposing censorship. But they're not really kind of activists in the sense that they're, you know, on picket lines and things. But I suppose I mean in a broader sense, do these lives, having gone into them and used all the sources that you can to reconstruct their lives for us, do they feel heroic to you in the way that that teenage you that wanted to be different (laughs) and liked people who were going to do, would be alternative, as it were. Do they feel heroic in that way to you? Do you and did you come to love them? I don't know if I... <laughs> I mean, it's the same with Carpenter. That I've been absolutely fascinated by this man, Edward Carpenter, for many years. But I'm not completely sure if I would have got on with him. <laughs> I, I would have been loved to be in the corner of a room watching, you know, when he was doing something, speaking or something. But... Whether I would have really got on with him, I'm not sure. But what about... And the, the, it's it'd be the same with these, because I, I think I would have been drawn towards them, but I don't know whether I would have been close <laughs> friends with them, mm. really. I am just really interested in aspects of all of them. But one th- thing that I did sort of learn from the book was that when you go into this micro thing and you're actually looking at a group, you can see them interacting with each other. So you get a a kind of dynamic sense of the development of people's ideas. And their ideas are so patchy. And it it made me think how complicated it is to understand consciousness and what it means to be radicalized. Because they get radicalized in certain ways, and then they have these... Reactions. I mean, when Miriam sees people who are Chinese, she has a reaction of horror and dread, and she's the same with people who are from Mexico. So there's a kind of way in which they have this mixture of being extremely radical in some ways and then in ways that we would think, yuck, why are you doing that? But I think it's also true that people's consciousnesses are so patchy mm. and that that means there isn't, you know, there's not any single pure identity of people who are kind of all the people who have everything right. So if that, I thought, was something perhaps being older that I, I can take. I don't think I could have, I don't think I would, I would have been really, you know, when I was young, I think I would have really dismissed that. But to try to understand them in all their patchy, prejudices as well as the things they say that I happen to agree with too. So you mean not to mind that they weren't necessarily coherent or benign? Well, they're not, yeah, yeah. they're not, they're neither. They're not really coherent. Don't put people off the book, Sheila, because it's much better than that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of us are not completely coherent. Yeah. And that, that's getting uh, a definite reaction. <laughs> Anybody here think they are coherent? <laughs> no, brave soul. But can I ask you something else, which is if you have, as I have two daughters who've gone through the school system and learnt about this period in traditional ways, you know, one gets so fed up of you know, the Pankhursts. And um, I know that. And, uh, and, and then, having studied this 
period at the LSE just before I came to get an education from you. You'd learn about certain people like Octavia Hill. and There are people who did change the course of history, and they were often upper-class women who were just very determined and stuck with it. And I wonder, these are upper-class, not upper-class, but they're two or three of them are from sort of well-off backgrounds who renounced that in order to enter radical worlds. But I'm wondering why they didn't have more influence. And I wonder, is it to do with them being peripatetic and moving? You know, if they'd have stayed in Bristol, and if Miriam had stayed in Bristol and been part of the Bristol ILP, she could have been on a, a stage with Keir Hardy. She could have been one of the leaders of the Labour Party. Not, I'm not saying that's better. I'm saying, why are they, didn't they have more influence on their time? I think if you stay in one place, the mem- your memory does continue in that place. But if you move, yeah. it, there's a loss of the threads. Because I mean, Gertrude Dix, people write about Gertrude Dix's novels and they say, well, nothing's known about Gertrude Dix's life. But actually, she goes out to California after the publication of The Image Breakers and has a passionate love affair with Robert yeah. and is then uh, gets married to him and has two daughters who themselves and one son, the two daughters get involved in 1920s San Francisco Bohemia and one of them ends up reading her poems with the beat. So the kind of descent goes on through the generations. But there is something sad yet again. Maternity does for Gertrude Dix really, doesn't it? She falls in love with Robert Nichols. As you say, it's not clear why she goes over to America to meet him. They must have met in Bristol at an earlier stage. They did. Yeah, Yeah, and they had a very passionate love affair. She then had two daughters and a son and her life kind of really goes downhill doesn't it yes yeah yes. and so there's yeah. something there there's something sad about that about women of that yeah. period where i mean all the women in this book who become mothers not go downhill that's not quite the right <laughs> word but it's just very very difficult for them she writes western stories for yeah. the big news uh, circulation magazines yeah now we've got to um open it to questions so I know it might be difficult for people who haven't read the book, and I presume most people haven't. So I think we should just say, ask Sheila anything, really. <laughs> Don't you think? And, and also maybe the connection between... Because I'm very aware... This is a, there's the radicalism that you have reclaimed here and in your book before, Dreamers of a New Day. You're almost like... You know, they talk about people's late work, Philip Roth and so on. This is Sheila Robot and late work, the reclaiming of those people that you loved in your teens. But then you yourself, as women's I would love, are a, a living history yourself. And Lynn Siegel is here. There's many people living history. And now we're 40 years on to another period. So there's a very interesting generational spread here. Not to put anyone off <laughs> in terms of the questions to ask. Could you say something about the method in which you took and adopted to write this book? It sounds fascinating. <laughs> well... I, as I said, I heard about them because I, when I was writing about Carpenter, I, I discovered that there were these women in Bristol who were very keen on him, and I wondered you know, about them. I then discovered in 2009 that, the pa- that I went to see the papers of Helen Tufts. And Helen Tufts, the American um, character, she kept a journal from the time she was 12 which is in manuscript form at Smith. 
And when I got there, there were also photographs. And there was a photograph of William Bailey, who'd just been a name to me. I already knew from the papers in the Tamament that were Helena Bourne's papers that I'd come across really by chance when I'd been looking at other things there that there was a connection between Helena Bourne and William Bailey. So really, I was more like a, more than having a method. I was like a detective. You know, it was this and this. And I, I then looked up William Bailey in early days of Google. And blow me down, there's somebody called Helen Tufts Bailey. So I'm thinking, how is it that Helen Tufts, who's written this book about Helena Bourne, why is she called Helen Tufts Bailey? You know, mm. so, so gradually... And then um, I went to Amsterdam to the uh, International Social History Institute and uh, I went with Mike Richardson, my partner, who's a historian of Bristol local history. We, we discovered there that there was um, material that related to uh, William Bailey and the Socialist League in Manchester so there's, and it was like this all the time, little bits of jigsaws and people started providing things. The grandson of um, Gertrude and of Robert had material, so it was really putting things together Sounds like very that. exciting, was it? Yes, it was very exciting, very frustrating, because sometimes I knew there had to be a connection between people, and there was no evidence. And then, miraculously, one time, because Mike had been following the... Um, uh, auction uh, things for Bristol and we knew that some papers were going to come on the market because a very old man had died and we went to look at a collection of pamphlets there opened this pamphlet and there was the Edinburgh University Socialist uh, Society for 1884 and it said RAN which is the initials of Robert Allen Nicholl and Miriam Daniel it was signed by them. And Mike just sort of opened this thing by some kind of miracle, and there we found that. So the, it was really strange, some of, some of the detective plotting. So I don't know about method. I did panic over the novels a bit, and my editor, Leo Hollis, was very, very helpful because he helped me to get a structure for how to write about the image breakers, because I don't know if anyone here has read the image breakers by Gertrude Dix, but it, it, if you ever want to get really confused, <laughs> you can try that novel. Well, it's a fascinating that. novel, but really confusing. Well, I think you and Leo did a good job there. Aren't you? <laughs> Leo kind of said, do this first and then that, and then, that. And then it worked. Yeah. yeah. That's what editors are for. <laughs> okay. Um, I've read some of your chapters in the Sheffield archives that didn't make it into the Carpenter book, and so I'm wondering if there's anything that you, you had written for this book that then didn't make oh, it yes. into this oh, and if you yes. could extrapolate. Oh, ask Leo, who's sitting near you. He'll tell you, and Faith. It was a, a kind of vast chaos, this, because and it, it was so hard to trace six people. I mean, I, ha I sort of vaguely knew as more and more characters started coming in, this is going to be extremely difficult to, to weave in all these people. And it, it, it was very difficult, particularly because I had different kinds of evidence. I mean, I had this journal of Helen Tufts in great detail, 
and then very little personal stuff uh, from the mouth of William Bailey, for example. So it was really, uh, there was a, a problem of sources of how to uh, weave them all in, but they were necessary to put in because they were integral to, to the story of those people's lives. So if it's 400 pages, how many pages didn't make the cut? Just oh, I don't even know. I mean, think another, it's lost. Is it twice as long again? Or? I think it's lost somewhere in the early computer version. Ah, right, okay, I have okay. it. Just curious as a, a writer's question. I'm wondering how um, writing the book actually changed the way that you thought about things. Or what did you learn? What did you see differently as a result of this piece of work? I hadn't. I, I was familiar with the socialist and collective arguments, and less familiar with the, this strand of individualism. Although I knew that it existed, and I, I don't know if you know the work of someone called Lucy Dillap. She's written about anarchism and feminism. She's looked at things like the free woman, who, which a lot of feminists have looked at, but. Within the free woman, there's a strand of feminism that's very individualistic. And so it was interesting to discover that actually this strand was, was much was wider, and particularly in, this, in the United States. And we tend to connect individualism with the American right and the militant libertarian sort of right. But there, there was a time when this uh, group of anarchists who were individualist anarchists were, saw themselves as part on the left. And they actually, this group around liberty supported the labor theory of value, but they were very, very opposed to the state. And that's the, the influence on William Bailey and Miriam Daniel and uh, Robert Allen Nichol. But at the same time, the editor of Liberty was very sympathetic to um, books about um, the emancipation of women. I don't know how personally he was good about that myself, Benjamin Tucker, but he certainly they had Olive Schreiner and uh, there was a strong emphasis on um, women's emancipation. Although the women on Liberty were, were not, they, weren't, they were in a, definitely in a secondary position. And Miriam took, came into direct opposition with uh, Benjamin Tucker the editor, and really conflicts with him in, in very interesting ways around what you know, would be seen now as much more sort of cultural gender, gender arguments. So that individualism, <laughs> I, sorry, I got interested in that as a, historically, and I, th I think I would say that one reason I, I find these characters so interesting is that they did try to combine individualist mm. expression self-expression and um, some kind of collective social project. Wouldn't that have been your project throughout your life? <laughs> that seems to me. I but, guess. But now your friend Lynn has a question. As two people who've worked together closely and influenced each other, I find it fascinating that actually we're so different. And um, it's, it's wonderful for me to read your detailed historical research around individuals and what happens to them and generations and their life story because if I were writing something it would be completely different I would be trying to get this big picture, the framework, what's going on, are there any wars, what's the economic situation going on you know, what's the exact 
framework and background. And I wondered the extent to which that is sort of affecting you as you're looking at what's happening to the individuals. Or do you think you can just go with the individuals? No, no, they're in a historical context of what's happening in uh, in America at the time, the ones when they're in America. And um, it's very much in the political context of liberalism in Bristol at the beginning and uh, of the history of of new unionism. Um, One of the interesting things about new unionism is that I think that the Labour and... Uh, and the Marxist historians who wrote about it in the 20th century wanted to make it a bit more respectable Mm. because it was quite riotous. Certainly I know in Leeds it was and also in uh, in Bristol. So, I mean, I think as a historian you're always questioning all these frameworks because as you find out more about any particular thing it means that you say to yourself, well... New unionism was presented in a much more orderly way, for example, in the way that I learned the history. So we learned about Ben Tillett and the dock strike and the common yeah. man. But really, there were kind of people sort of, you know, getting barges and ramming them against things and blocking things and stopping black legs in mass, mass uh, movements. And Leeds was, for about three days, in a state of insurrection. But I don't think people wanted to mention this kind of thing. Can I slightly reinterpret Lynn's question? Because in, I think what you're saying is that you, that you, Sheila, the social historian, let the, let the people take centre stage. I was amazed at what you do know about the context, the global context, you know, and suddenly you mention the Russian Revolution, you think, oh, yeah, of course, that's going on. And, but you're terribly well-informed about the frame, but really it's, it's sort of the novelist in you, I think. You let them tell the story. And I think what Lynn's saying is if she was writing it, she'd do a sort of sociological kind of chunk job, you know. I'm not being rude to you, but is that, that's really... So, so there's something in you that sort of doesn't control your characters, is that right? She's nodding, so I think a bit, a bit. I couldn't be a novelist because I don't think I could invent, you know. I mean, for so long, I've been trained not to invent, but to sort of go by little but details you make, you of use, accuracy. You use a novelist skill to recreate lives that are there, with which you, and you have documentary evidence, so you don't have to invent, but you do, you, you do very lovingly and patiently and in precisely recreate these lives. Anyway, that's enough flattery, Sheila, for that moment. Anybody got a question? Could you, could you say a bit more, uh, Sheila, about the... You said how you discovered that one of your characters who you were trying to sort of see as they really were and not treat as heroes and, you know, had this kind of thing about Chinese people and Mexican people and so on. I mean, can you, can you put that in... Uh, context because these these were real issues for yeah. the labor movement at that time in yeah, yeah. the states. So, what was going on there? What, was, what was going very, on in that person's head? It was. I think. I think with Miriam that this was. I mean, there's a, a, a general hostility in the labor movement to people who are from China in the uh, period in areas like San Francisco, but this is not. The same with Miriam. I think it was just a panic. I mean, she, they arrived in, um, uh, on, on their, they didn't get to the ranch. They, they're waiting there, and they, they just 
she's just exhausted. They've got no money, and she's she's panicking. Uh, she she'd made this decision to to rush over there in a panic because for some reason she was frightened that Robert would get arrested because the sheriff came with the writs for the divorce from her um, husband. And she's at this totally low ebb, and she just can't... She has this recoil. But Helen Tufts is just got all these prejudices against every group, Polish people, Jewish people, Irish people, even though William Bailey is Irish. She has every group is, you know, there's something wrong with every group apart from wasps and English socialists because Helena was an English socialist. Yet at the same time, she's involved in the anarchist movement in, in America. And um, she gradually, these, these more right-wing and conservative attitudes come to dominate and she moves away from the anarchist movement partly because of a fear about violence and she's very hostile to uh, the uh, justification of individual violence. But later on, she, she does modify her group, her views, thank goodness, and homosexuals she's very prejudiced against even though she's, um, you know, she thinks Carpenter's wonderful. Um, but later on, her daughter, who is named Helena, really uh, changes her, and she does, she does modify, thank goodness, her views. But they're so characteristic of white Anglo-Saxon Americans. Um, but other people did contest those views, so that's not to justify to say that they were somehow inevitable that they had those views. But they, they were pretty... And also race, she's pretty hopeless on. Although, of course, she's anti-slavery. And that, again, was something that occurred in America, that people could be personally prejudiced. Um, well, I think we have to stop now. And I think stopping on a point that illustrates the contradictions of the radical life seems a good one. So um, can we say a huge thank you to Sheila for talking about... <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.